0: Forward of the Old Coast Road from Boston to Plymouth this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Steve Mattern The Old Coast Road from Boston to Plymouth by Agnes Edwards Boston a forward To love Boston or to laugh at Boston it all depends on whether or not you are a Bostonian Perhaps the happiest attitude, and the most intelligent, is tinged with both amusement and affection, amusement at the undeviating ceremonial of baked beans on Saturday night and fish balls on Sunday morning, at the Boston bag, not so ubiquitous now as formerly, at the indefatigable consumption of lectures, at the Bostonese pronunciation, affection for honorable traditions, noble buildings, distinguished men and women. Boston is an old city, one must remember that it was settled almost three centuries ago, and old cities, like old people, become tenacious of their idiosyncrasies, admitting their inconsistencies and prejudices with complacency, wisely aware that age has bestowed on them a special value which is automatically increased with the passage of time. To tell the story of an old city is like cutting down through the various layers of a fruity layer cake when you turn the slice over you see that every piece is a cross-section so almost every locality and phase of this venerable metropolis could be studied and really should be studied according to its historical strata colonial provincial revolutionary economic and literary all of these periods have piled up their associations one upon the other and all of them must be somewhat understood if one would sincerely comprehend what has aptly been called not a city but a state of mind it is as impossible for the casual sojourner to grasp the significance of the multifarious historical and literary events which have transpired here as for a few pages to outline them wherever one stands in boston suggests the church of san clemente in rome where you remember there are three churches built one upon the other however those who would take the lovely journey from boston to plymouth needs must make some survey no matter how superficial of their starting place and perhaps the best spot from which to begin is the common this pleasantly rolling expanse which was set aside as long ago as sixteen forty with the decree that there shall be no land granted either for house plot or garden out of ye open land or common field has been unbrokenly maintained ever since and as far as acreage goes it approximates fifty acres could still fulfil its original use of pasturing cows a practice which was continued until eighteen thirty it was here that john hancock's cattle grazed he who lived in such magnificence on the hill and in whose side yard the state house was built and once when preparations for an official banquet were halted by shortage of milk tradition has it that he ordered his servants to hasten out to the common and milk every cow there, regardless of ownership. Tradition also tells us that the little boy Ralph Waldo Emerson tended his mother's cow here, and finally, both traditions and existing law declare that yonder one-story building, opening upon Mount Vernon Street, and possessing an oddly wide door, must forever keep that door of sufficient width to let the cows pass through the common. Let us stand upon the steps of the State House and look out over the common. To our right, near the intersection of Boylston and Tremont streets, lies the half-forgotten, almost obliterated, central burying-ground, the final resting place of Gilbert Stuart, the famous American painter. At the left points the spire of Park Street Church, notable not for its age, for it is only a little over a century old, but for its charming beauty and the fact that William Lloyd Garrison delivered his first address here, and here, "'America' was sung in public for the first time. "'It was the windiness of this corner "'which was responsible for Tom Appleton's suggestion "'he was the brother-in-law of Longfellow, "'that a shorn lamb be tethered here. "'The graceful spire of Park Street Church "'serves not only as a landmark, "'but also as a most fitting terminal "'to a street of many associations. "'It is on Park Street "'that the publishing house of Houghton Mifflin and Company, now Houghton Mifflin Company, has had its offices for forty years, and the bookstores and the antique shops, tucked quaintly down a few steps below the level of the sidewalk, have much of the flavor of a bit of London. Still standing on the State House steps, facing the Common, you are also facing what has been called the noblest monument in Boston, and the most successfully placed one in America. It is St. Gaudens' bronze relief of Colonel Robert G. Shaw commanding his Coloured Regiment, and if you see no other sculpture in a city which has its full quota, you must see this memorial, spirited in execution, spiritual in its conception, of a mighty moment. If we had time to linger, we could not do better than to follow Beacon Street to the left, pausing at the Anthonyum, a library of such dignity and beauty that one instinctively and properly thinks of it as an institution rather than a mere building. To enjoy the Anthonyum. One must be a proprietor and own a share, which entitles one not only to the use of the scholarly volumes in scholarly seclusion, but also in the afternoon to entrance to an alcove where tea is served for three pennies. Perhaps here, as well as any other place, you may see a characteristic assortment of what are fondly called Boston types. There is the professor from Cambridge, a gentleman with a pointed beard and noticeably cultivated annunciation. One from Wellesley, this a lady, with that keen and paradoxically impractical expression which marks pure intellectuality, an alert matron, plainly, almost shabbily dressed, aristocratic Boston still scorns sartorial smartness, a very well-bred young girl with bone spectacles, a student, shabby, like the back-bay matron, but for another reason, a writer, a businessman whose hobby is Washingtonia these all of them you may enjoy along with your cup of tea for three cents if and here is the crux you can only be admitted in the first place and if you are admitted do not fail to look out of the rear window upon the ancient granary burying-ground where rests the ashes of hancock sewell fanuel samuel adams otis revere and many more notables if you have a penchant for graveyards this one entered from tremont street Is more than worthy of further study. This is but one of the many things we could enjoyably do if we had time, but whether we have time or not we must pay our respects to the State House, one does not call it the capital in Boston as in other cities, the prominence of whose golden dome is not unsuggestive, to those who recall it, of St. Baltoff's Beacon Tower in Boston, England, for which this city was named. The State House is a distinctively American building and bullfinch the great american architect did an excellent thing when he designed it the dome was originally covered with plates of copper rolled by no other than that expert silversmith and robust patriot paul revere he whose midnight ride has been recited by so many generations of school children and whose exquisite flagons cups ladles and sugar-tongs not only compared with the best continental work of that period but have set a name and standard for American craftsmanship ever since. If you should walk up and down the chessboard of Beacon Hill, taking the night's move occasionally across the narrow cross streets, you could not help treading the very squares which were familiar to the feet of that generation of authors which has permanently stamped American literature. At 55 Beacon Street, down near the foot of the hill and facing the common, still stands the handsome, swell front, buff brick house where prescott the historian lived on mount vernon street which runs parallel to beacon and which with its dignified beauty won the approval of that connoisseur of beautiful streets henry james one can pick out successively the numbers fifty nine seventy six eighty three eighty four the first and last being homes of thomas bailey aldrich and the other two distinguished by the residence of william ellery channing and margaret deland Pickney Street runs parallel with Mount Vernon, and the small narrow house at number 20 was one of the homes of the Alcott family. It seems delightfully fitting that Louisburg Square, that very exclusive and very English spot which probably maintains more of the quaint atmosphere and customs of an aristocratic past than any other single area in the city, should have been the home of the well-loved William Dean Howells one also likes to recall that jenny lind was married at number twenty chestnut street which after a period of social obscurity is again coming into its own possesses julia ward howe's house at number thirteen that of motley the historian at sixteen and of parkman at fifty in this hasty map we have gone up and down the hill but the cross street charles although not so attractive is nevertheless as rich in history and literary associations as any in boston here lived for a short time at 164 oliver wendell holmes and at 131 also for a short time thomas bailey aldrich it is however at 148 that we should longest pause this for many rich years was the home of james t fields that delightful man of letters who was the friend of many men of letters he who entertained dickens and thackeray and practically every foreign writer of note who visited this country he who encouraged hawthorne to the completion of scarlet letter and he who as an appreciative critic publisher and editor probably did more to elevate inspire and sustain the general literary tone of the city than any other single person in these stirring days facile american genius springs up like brush fires from coast to coast novels pour in from the west the middle west the south To superficial outsiders, it may seem as if Boston might be hard-pressed to keep her laurels green, but Boston herself has no fears. Her present may not shine with so unique a brilliance as her past, but her past gains in luster with each succeeding year. Nothing can ever take from Boston her high literary prestige. While we are still on Beacon Hill, we can look out, not only upon the past, but upon the future. Those white domes and pillars gleaming like Greek temples across the Blue Charles are the new buildings of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and surely Greek temples were never lovelier nor dedicated to more earnest pursuit of things not mundane. Quite as beautiful and quite as Grecian as the technology buildings is the noble marble group of the School of Medicine of Harvard University, out by the Fenlands, that section of the city which is rapidly becoming a student's quarter with its simmons college the new england conservatory of music art schools gymnasiums private and technical schools of all descriptions and its body of over twelve thousand students harvard is of course across the river in cambridge and preparatory schools and colleges dot the suburbs in every direction upholding the cultural traditions of a city which has proved itself peculiarly fitted to educational interests all this time we have like bona fide bostonians stayed on beacon hill and merely looked out at the rest of the city and perhaps this is as typical a thing as we could have done beacon hill was the centre of original boston when the back bay was merely a marsh and long after the marsh was filled in and streets were laid out and handsome residences lined them Beacon Hill looked down scornfully at the new section and murmured that it was built upon the discarded hoop skirts and umbrellas of the true Bostonians. Even when almost everyone was crowded off the hill, and the back bay became the more aristocratic section of the two, there was still enough of the original inhabitants left to scorn those upstart social pretensions. And now Beacon Hill is again coming back into her own. The fine old houses are being carefully almost worshipfully restored, probably never again to lose their rightful place in the general life of the city. But if Beacon Hill was conservative in regard to Back Bay, that district, in its turn, showed an equal unprogressiveness in regard to the Esplanade. To the stranger in Boston, delighting in that magnificent walk along the Charles River embankment, with the arching spans of the Cambridge and Harvard bridges on one side— and the homes of wealth and mellow refinement on the other, a walk which for invigorating beauty compares with any in the cities of men, it seems incredible that when this promenade was laid out a few years ago, the householders along the water's edge absolutely refused to turn their front windows away from Beacon Street. Furthermore, they ignored the fact that their backyards and back windows presented an unbecoming face to such an incomparably lovely promenade and the inevitable household rearrangement by which the drawing-rooms were placed in the rear was literally years in the process of achievement. But such conservatism is one of Boston's idiosyncrasies, which we must accept like the wind and the flat A. Present-day Bostonians are proud, and properly so, of their Copley Square, with its public library rich with the mural paintings of Purvey de Chonvey, with Abbey's Quest of the Holy Grail and Sargent's Frieze of the Prophets, with its well-loved Trinity Church, and with much excellent sculpture by Bella Pratt. Copley Square is the cultural center of modern Boston. The famous Lowell Lectures, established about 75 years ago as free gifts to the people, are enthusiastically attended by audiences as Bostonese as one could hope to congregate, and in all sorts of queer nests in this vicinity are theosophical reading rooms, small halls where Buddhism is studied or new thought taught, and half a hundred new or very old philosophies, religions, fads, fashions, reforms, and isms find shelter. It is easy to linger in Copley Square. Indeed, hundreds and hundreds of men and women, principally women, come from all over the United States for the sole purpose of spending a few months or a season in this very place, enjoying the lectures, concerts, and art exhibitions which are so easily and freely accessible. But in this bird's-eye flight across the historical and geographical map of a city that tempts one to many pleasant delays, we must hover for a brief moment over the south and north ends. Skipping back then almost three centuries, but not traveling far as distance goes, the stranger in Boston cannot do better than to find his way from Copley Square to the old South Church on Washington Street that venerable building whose desecration by the British troops in 1775 the citizens found it ever so hard to forgive. It was here that Benjamin Franklin was baptized in 1706, here that Joseph Warren made a dramatic entry to the pulpit by way of the window in order to denounce the British soldiers, and here that momentous meetings were held in the heaving days before the Revolution. The old South Church burying ground, is now called the King's Chapel Burying Ground, and King's Chapel itself, a quaint, dusky building, suggestive of a London chapel, is only a few blocks away. Across its door-sill have not only stepped the royal governors of pre-revolutionary days, but Washington, General Gage, the indestructibly romantic figures of Sir Harry Franklin and Agnes Suriage, the funeral processions of General Warren and Charles Sumner, the organ which came from England in 1756 is said to have been selected by Handel at the request of King George, and along the walls of the original King's Chapel were hung the estations of the Kings of England and of the Royal Governors. The old State houses is in this vicinity, in as worthy, as are indeed both the old South Church and King's Chapel, of careful architectural study and enjoyment. There are portraits, Pictures, relics, and rooms within and without, the beautifully quaint lines and truly lovely details of the facade infuse a perpetual charm into the atmosphere of the city. It was directly in front of this building that the Boston Massacre took place in 1770, and from this second-story balcony that the repeal of the Stamp Act was read, and ten years later the full text of the Declaration of Independence." Perhaps the next most interesting building in this section of old Boston is Faneuil Hall, the cradle of liberty, whose dignified old-fashioned proportions were not lost, thanks to Bullfinch, when it was enlarged. A gift of a public-spirited citizen, this building has served in a double capacity for hundred and seventy-seven years, having public market stalls below and a large hall above, a hall which is never rented but used freely by the people whenever they wish to discuss public affairs. It would be impossible to enumerate the notable speakers and meetings which have rendered this hall famous, from General Gage down to Daniel Webster, Theodore Roosevelt, and Marshall Joffrey. If you are fond of water sights and smells, you can step from Faneuil Hall down to a region permeated with the flavor of salt and the sound of shipping, a region of both ancient tradition and present activity. Here is India Wharf, its seven-story yellow brick building once so tremendously significant of Boston's shipping prosperity. Long Wharf, so named because when it was built it was the longest in the country and bore a battery at its end. Central Wharf, with its row of venerable stone warehouses. T-Wharf, immensely picturesque with its congestion of craft of all descriptions. Commercial Wharf where full-rigged sailing vessels which traded with china and india in the cape of good hope were wont to anchor a hundred years ago all this region is crammed with the paraphernalia of a typical waterfront curious little shops where sailors supplies are sold airy lofts where sails are cut and stitched and repaired fish stores of all descriptions sailors haunts awaiting the pen of an american thomas burke The old custom house where Hawthorne unwillingly plodded through his enforced routine is here, and near it the new custom house rears its tower 498 feet above the sidewalk, a beacon from both land and sea. The north end of Boston has not fared as well as the south end. The sons of Abraham and immigrants from Italy have appropriated the streets, dwellings, churches, and shops of the entire region, and even Christ Church, the famous Old North Church, has a Chiesa Italiana on its grounds. There are many touches to stir the memory in this Old North Church, the chime of eight bells naively stating, We are the first ring of bells cast for the British Empire in North America, the pew with the inscription that is set apart for the use of the Gentlemen of the Bay of Honduras, visiting merchants who contributed the spire to the church in 1740, Vaults beneath the church, forbidden now to visitors, where lie the bones of many revolutionary heroes, a unique collection of vellum-covered books, and a few highly precious pieces of ancient furniture. The most conspicuous item about the church, of course, is that from its tower were hung the signal lanterns of Paul Revere, destined to shine imperishably down the ever-lengthening aisles of American history. Before we press on to Bunker Hill for that is our final destination, we should cast a glance at Copse Hill Burying Ground, that hillside refuge where one can turn either back to the annals of the past or look out over the rooftops and narrow streets to the present and the future. If you choose the latter, you can easily see Boston Harbor and Charlestown Navy Yard, that Navy Yard which has outstripped even its spectacular traditions by its stirring achievements in the Great War, Old Ironsides will lie here forever in the well-earned serenity of a secure old age, and it is probable that another ship, the Compresen Sicily, although lost under the name of Mount Vernon and a coat of gray paint, will be long preserved in maritime history. The plain shaft of Bunker Hill Monument, standing to mark the spot where the Americans lost a battle that was in reality a victory, is like a blank mirror reflecting only that which one presents to it. According to your historical knowledge and your emotional grasp, Bunker Hill Monument is significant. Skimming thus over the many-storied city, in a sort of literary airplane, it has been possible to point out only a few of the most conspicuous places and towers. The common lies like a tiny pocket-handkerchief of path-marked green at the foot of crowded Beacon Hill. The white esplanade curves beside the blue charles, The Back Bay is only a checkerboard of streets, alphabetically arranged. Copley Square is hardly distinguishable. The spires of the Old South Church, King's Chapel, Old State House, and Faneuil Hall punctuate the South End, the North Church, the North End. The new Custom House Tower and the Bunker Hill Monument seem hardly more than the minarets of a child's toy village. The writer, as a pilot over this particular city, alights and resigns, Commending for more detailed study and for delightful guidance, Robert Shackleton's Book of Boston. Let us now leave the city and set out in a more leisurely fashion on our way to Plymouth. End of Forward